Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. If you're a first-time listener, we're delighted to have you join us. And if you've been a regular listener, thanks for continuing to tune in. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering NAIC Newcomer. Chuck talks with new West Virginia Insurance Commissioner James Dodrell. Plus, AOB reform heads to the governor's desk, but not before one Florida lawyer's last-ditch effort to game the system. And a new model for insurance. How Hippo Insurance uses artificial intelligence to redefine the customer experience. It's been seven years in the making, but the Florida legislature has finally passed assignment of benefits reform legislation. The bill applies to commercial and residential property insurance claims and will go a long way toward reducing the inflated claims and lawsuits that ended up being passed along to consumers. But even before Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has had a chance to sign the legislation into law, a new video by trial lawyer Harvey Cohen urges vendors to send in as many AOBs as possible before the law takes effect July 1. The most important thing that I can tell you right now is that you get every AOB sent in, whether you send it to us or whoever you're working with, your attorneys need that case right now. Get them all filed. Stop trying to fight and negotiate. Get them filed with your attorneys and and let them do the legal work necessary to collect the hard-earned money that you deserve. As the self-proclaimed inventor of Florida's current AOB phenomenon, Cohen promises he has some new tactics to share to thwart the good common-sense consumer protection bill. This is precisely the type of gaming the system that spun AOB litigation out of control. NAMIC's regional vice president, Liz Reynolds, says support from state legislators made all the difference in getting the bill passed this year. The most important difference was that Speaker Oliva, President Galvano, and all the other leaders in the House and Senate understood the importance of addressing the AOB crisis this year. And they were all willing to work hard to get the final bill over the finish line. In addition, CFO Patronus and Commissioner Altmaier also worked very hard to make sure legislators understood the importance of addressing the AOB crisis. And they spoke about it frequently during session, before session, and, and focused attention on it in a way that probably no other uh, state leaders could do. And of course, having the governor's support right out of the gate during his state of the state address, not long after he took office, he referred to AOB abuse as a racket and that made an impression as well. But uh, it goes without saying that those legislative leaders in the House and Senate this year really, really carried the ball and worked hard to get it passed. So we can't thank them enough. Governor DeSantis is expected to sign the AOB bill in the next week. The final version of this bill did not include provisions for auto glass AOB reforms. And NAMIC will continue to fight for those important consumer protections in the 2020 legislative session. In Nevada, NAMIC has sent a letter to Governor Jay Inslee asking him to veto legislation that will significantly enlarge the category of individuals legally entitled to assert a wrongful death claim. 
In its veto request, NAMIC stated that the proposed legislation could adversely impact the legal rights of claimants financially harmed by a person's death by allowing non-economically affected claimants to assert competing tort claims. Hippo Insurance is using artificial intelligence and machine learning to create a new model for insurance. We spoke with the California-based InsurTech company's chief insurance officer, Rick McCathron, during NAMIC's personal line seminar. He explains how Hippo uses proactive underwriting to redefine the customer experience. 10% of our customers have had a major underwriting change to their property, and they never thought to call us and tell us about it. So, and oftentimes those are positive changes for the customer. So how many people change their roof, you know, put a new roof on the house and think to call their insurance agent? They don't. Yet roof is a major rating component for everybody's homeowner's insurance. So we notice, we get our uh, aerial imagery refreshed every two or three months. We proactively call the customer and say, we notice you have a new roof. Can you verify that? Once they do, we then change the pricing based on a brand new roof as opposed to their previous 20-year-old roof. We also identify things like pools, swimming pools. So most customers don't think to call their insurance agent when they added a new swimming pool. But that does change the underwriting characteristics of the house. So we reach out to them, we congratulate them for their new swimming pool, and we confirm that they have appropriate liability coverage for when the neighbor kids are coming over. So it's that ongoing underwriting throughout the life of the policy that is important because our main focus should be to protect people's assets and change the protection based on their change of life circumstance. For companies looking to modernize their systems, McCathron says insurance companies must shift and adapt much quicker than they are now, or else they will be left with very few customers. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners held its spring meeting in Orlando this April, with the most noteworthy progress made updating the Credit for Reinsurance Model Law and Regulation, as well as NAIC's new Group Capital Calculation. NAMIC took the opportunity to testify before six working groups and committees on those issues, as well as on the private flood insurance market, the terrorism risk insurance program, the operational risk accounting factor, and the Financial Stability Oversight Council's new interpretive guidance on analyzing systemic risk for non-bank financial firms. There were a lot of new faces in attendance, with 15 states seeing a change in leadership at their respective departments of insurance. One of the newcomers is West Virginia Insurance Commissioner James Dodrill. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnis talks with Dodrill about his impressions following the NAIC meeting and how things have gone during his first few months on the job. My guest today on Unscripted is the newly appointed insurance commissioner for the state of West Virginia, James Dodrill. Well, welcome to our podcast, Jim. Thank you uh, for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to uh, have you join us, and especially so early in your tenure there as the uh, commissioner in uh, West Virginia. We're really delighted to have the opportunity to just get to know you a little bit, um, maybe find out some insights on your new role and a little bit about your past history and kind of what you bring to the position as well. So, again, welcome. Sure. So you started back on March 4th. That's just a couple months from the uh, time here of our conversation, but it's really been a bit of a whirlwind. And so maybe um, you could give us a little sense of what you were before becoming a commissioner, what you've done in your career uh, that led you to this point. 
Um, I've uh, been a lawyer uh, for about uh, a little over 32 years. Um, was in private practice for about uh, almost 15 years, and then uh, went in-house with uh, uh, the, the progressive group of insurance companies for about the last 19 and a half years. Started out when I was in private practice doing. Uh, actually, I had I did plaintiff's work. I was a personal injury lawyer for a while, and wow, and then represented a, a few uh, some small municipalities and. And as a result of that work, actually moved over and started doing some insurance defense work, and uh, that's how I ended up on this side of the fence. Well, that is certainly a balanced background, uh, both sides, and then uh, some inside work, and now uh, on the you know public service side as a regulator. I also know from your bio that you have uh, an interesting background in uh, civil air patrol and and flying in the military, even prior to that. That's correct. The CEP uh, kind of came naturally. I was uh, in the Air Force and the Air National Guard for uh, 21 years, and while I was still doing that, I was introduced to the Civil Air Patrol, which actually is older than the Air Force. Wow. Um, it was created um, on December 1st of 1941, six days before Pearl Harbor, hmm. uh, and it's the official auxiliary of the Air Force, and we do uh, three congressionally mandated missions. We do uh, search and rescue or emergency services and uh, disaster relief. And then they have uh, also uh, cadet programs and aerospace education as our three congressionally chartered missions. Cool. Are you still doing it? I am. I've been doing it for um, about 33 years. <laughs> Excellent. Well, and I would ask, uh, I guess to begin, I wanted to find out, uh, what you thought of your first NEIC meeting? I know that you uh, attended at least your first as a commissioner recently. Uh, I wondered, have you been to one before, or was this your first NEIC meeting, period? Yeah, I had not been before. It was my first. Um, and I'll just say that it's unlike any meeting I had ever been to before, either as a lawyer, um, as a lobbyist, or anything else. It's uh, it's truly an intense five days. Yeah, it is uh it is a, uh, a unique and I'd say a bit quirky meeting. Um, it's an interesting organization, obviously, that plays an important role in insurance regulation. Uh, but um, I'm not at those meetings regularly, uh, but I do remember way back in the day when I first attended them uh, and there was actually a dance that was part of the uh, agenda at the NEIC meeting. Uh, that was interesting. You said a dance? A dance, kind of like, I think it might have been informally referred to as an insurance prom. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, ask the uh, old timers around there, and I think that will be confirmed. So uh, I'll have to do that. Uh, there, there was no dance at this meeting. Uh, it was pretty much just uh, 7 a.m. Uh, to uh, well into the evening hours every day, five days of, uh, of meetings, and uh, pr pretty intense. Well, I know one of your roles is the uh, new chair of the Industry Relations Group. Um, what are your thoughts about that group and, and, you know, first exposure to it, and what would you like to accomplish in that role? Um, I think it's a very important group, um, just like the Consumer Relations uh, Committee is as well. Uh, to maintain uh, uh, a great relationship with the industry and hear from the industry uh, uh, new innovative ideas and and things that are 
that are going on in the industry, bring them to the attention of the NAIC uh, earlier rather than later um, so we can get our arms around uh, those types of things and anything that are issues, uh, concerns uh, that might already be in the public specter as well. For example, one, one thing we looked at this time was the flood insurance in general and and uh, the, the issue of private flood insurance. So uh, timely issues, and uh, I think it's a very important committee. Yeah, it sure is. And maybe we'll just continue with flood insurance a little bit. I was going to ask you about uh, you know biggest challenges and opportunities you see around our property casualty insurance industry and specifically in West Virginia. I have a feeling flood could show up on that list, but uh, you know, what do you think of um, challenges that we face and things we need to address as an industry? I think you obviously hit the nail on the head when you mentioned flood insurance. It's an issue for West Virginia, more particularly now, because we're three years out, almost three years out from our 2016,000-year flood event where we had 20-some folks in West Virginia lose their lives in that summer flooding. And the FEMA flood policies that were given out as part of the relief to the residents in West Virginia are getting ready to expire. And so now we're, we, we're doing some consumer outreach to uh, make sure that folks who got those policies know that they need to convert those policies into privately paid policies or run the risk of not having uh, or reduced or non-existent FEMA assistance uh, if there's another flooding event in the future. And so that's, that's a, very, uh, a very important issue for us here in West Virginia and uh, we're also de- looking at uh, uh, some insurers who are uh, offering uh, private flood insurance as well. Well, I know uh, NAMIC held a meeting at uh, Greenbrier last summer, I think, and um, we saw the aftermath of the flood. I actually uh, went to dinner with a friend of mine who has a house there in, uh, in the valley close to the resort, and he showed me, you know, kind of the impact of the flood and how high the water was, the stuff that washed away. It was really a a terrible disaster. And I know, you know, with your experience with the CAP, you've had uh, some experience in search and rescue. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe even how uh, drones are are being used now as well as uh, regular fixed wing and other types of uh, rescue efforts? Sure. Um, actually, in the, the 2016 flood, I had the uh, uh, opportunity to, to act as uh, CAP's incident commander for a 30-day period uh, where we initially started out doing search and rescue immediately in the, the hours and a couple days after the flooding, and then that converted into a disaster relief operation where we conducted all the aerial imagery, the geo, geotagged aerial, aerial imagery for FEMA and the National Guard, uh, in all of the affected areas of the flooding. Um, so we, we got to see that up close and personal from a 1,000 feet in the air for about a month, um, all the de- destruction and devastation in the state. Um, so we we did that, and then we're, we're also in the process um, of starting to employ drones. Uh, CEP currently is the largest operator of a drone, a small UAV fleet in the country. Hmm. And we're using those extensively for um, disaster relief, aerial imagery, where you can get up close and personal as well. You're uh, licensed? I am. I'm a Part 107 pilot myself. I'm a 
a, a fixed wing pilot and a in a drone pilot. And how uh, now you already had many years of experience with uh, fixed wing, but how difficult was the uh, licensing process for the the drone pilot drone license? It, it's actually a little bit uh, more abbreviated if you're already a, an FAA you know certified pilot. Um, you don't have to go through um, some of the uh, things that a, a non-pilot uh, has to go through, uh, but you still have to, to recertify every two years. You have to take an examination uh, and to prove your proficiency. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And then on top of that, CEP has some piloting requirements as well, kind of like the Air Force. You might be a, a pilot, but then you have to go through check rides. And you actually have to do a what's called a check ride for your drone, uh, be able to operate your drone both generally and then for um, for missions. Uh, you have to be qualified to operate them in the specific environment to do the specific task that you're that you're doing. Wow. I'm sure that's useful uh, training. Do you see drones, uh, you know, fast forward a year or two and you, you know, perhaps look at a different major event like that and you're involved with the post-disaster relief? Do you see the drones being used to deliver, um, you know, things to remote areas uh, as, you know, some have envisioned and clearly Amazon is... Uh, is working on uh, uh, today. I do, and in fact, there are entities, public public uh, emergency response uh, entities, that are working with the FAA uh, right now to try to expand those capabilities in those disaster relief situations. Hmm, interesting. Well, we've been working on this uh, for a few years now with the FAA, mostly at the federal level, but uh, you know, we think that they had their first cut at commercial drone use, which of course is important to our members as both users of drones and insurers of drones. And so we're looking for the FAA to continue to improve the regulation to allow things like, you know, the flying over people and um, uh, line of sight uh, so that uh, even more of our member companies can use the drones and particularly in the, you know, inspection process and in the post-disaster assessment process where we know they'll be very valuable tools. Absolutely. I'm fully in favor of that. It's obviously a lot safer to uh, to do a roof inspection uh, using a small uh, unmanned aerial vehicle as opposed to putting someone up there with a ladder. Exactly. So last question. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I just thought in terms of uh, you know the great state of West Virginia, uh, I've had some experience there when I lived in D.C. We'd often go to some place like Snowshoe and ski or you know, spend time in the mountains, but um, what are the two or three things you think uh, all of our listeners should know about your great state? Well, we're a, 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 if you like the outdoors, we're, we're, we're the place for you. Um, we have a, a lot of uh, beautiful uh, geographic space. Um, if you like the mountains, if you like to hike, if you like to mountain bike, if you like to rock climb, uh, we have the whitewater rafting on the Gauley and New Rivers. Um, in the when the weather is, gets good uh, for the spring and summer and the fall, uh, and then we have of course the uh, the skiing opportunities in the in the winter time as well. So any season of the year, we're we're the place to come if uh, if you like outdoors. I've done all those things in West Virginia except rock climbing, and you remind me that we were a White River rafting on the Golly River, and. Um, the, our guide in our boat said, now listen, up here around this bend, I want you to stay to the right. Because if you go to the left, you're going to brush up against Schoolhouse Rock. He goes, you know why it's called Schoolhouse Rock? 
And we're like, no. He goes, because if you brush it up against it the wrong way, it's going to teach you a lesson. So <laughs> that was uh, that was our white river rafting. We also did the mountain biking, skiing, and uh, just sightseeing. So thanks for the insight to the state, and thanks for your uh, service as uh, commissioner and your involvement with the industry. Um, we look forward to getting to know you better in the future. Well, thanks again for having me. Thank you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Ross Buckmuller, president and CEO of Pure. They'll discuss the way Pure has embraced innovation to create an entirely new kind of insurance company. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on May 15th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, please don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered@namic.org. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.